0: Welcome back to the Pilots Lounge, episode 15. Aviation history buffs, buckle up. On today's episode, we are joined by Igor Sikorsky III. Igor III runs Bradford Camps, a remote sporting camp in northern Maine, where he also owns and operates a part 135 float plane operation. He tells us his story and then dives deep into the history of his grandfather, aviation pioneer and legend, Igor Sikorsky. So from wherever you're listening, sit back, grab your cup of coffee. And thanks again for joining the Pilots Lounge. Welcome to the Pilots Lounge, where it's all things freedom, flight, and fitness. Join your hosts, Spencer Payne, Nick Yates, Brett Kroll, and Kyle Kilroy, while we bring you aviators of all types from around the world. For our listeners today, we have Igor Sikorsky III, the grandson of, you know, the OG himself, Igor Sikorsky, who pioneered what is known to be the first helicopter, even though he does credit Leonardo da Vinci with doing so. Most people don't know that he actually started out making airplanes, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Igor Sikorsky III.
1: Hello. Hello. Uh, nice to meet you and thank you for having me on your, uh, your program here. It's an honor and a pleasure to uh, be with three of you Black Hawk pilots. I know my grandfather, my grandfather was always honoring the brave individuals who flew the machines that he built. And uh, so that's and, I, and I'm proud to be here representing my grandfather also.
0: Now, Igor, the way that we start things off typically here at the Pilots Lounge, just to kind of get everybody comfortable, um, I know that you're a pilot and I know that with that comes sitting with an instructor and you do a little bit of oral knowledge at the beginning of every check ride before you go out and fly. And the military, we call that table talk. Not that anybody necessarily likes likes that, but we try to have a little bit of fun with it. It's just a, a couple, you know off the mark questions not related to anything to get the creative juices flowing and to get everybody comfortable so i know spencer and brett have some questions and you know we'll start off with those
1: yeah
2: hey igor so one one of the
1: things um
2: can i interrupt who's who's there there's spencer and burnham (laughs) brett brett sir sorry yeah you're brett yes cool um, okay. That's one of many names people call him. I prefer most. Burnham. I'm going to start calling him yeah, yeah, we're, we're, just so you
0: know, just so you know, we are now permanently calling him Burnham. That,
2: that'll work. <laughs> I'm, I'm used uh, to, just... I'm used to asshole or shithead or whatever. So, um, but, uh, yeah. So with that, um, where, what's your favorite like dive bar, where's your favorite dive bar that you've been to the dive bar. Oh, wow. Well,
1: you mean, um, in recent years or like in all time? All time. <laughs> so I'm just going to do the one that popped into my head first. And uh, Karen's, um, Karen's sister lives in Charlotte. Brother-in-law lives in Charlotte. Um, and they're coming up to visit actually in a couple of days. But we go down there for um, uh, for vacations and for holidays and stuff. So there's all kinds of pop-up bars and pop-up breweries that are down in Charlotte, but there's a bar down in Charlotte (laughs) and they probably don't even want me to speak their name because this is a bar that's been there forever with a pop-up condo that has grown right around it. And it's literally the shape of the condo outlines the contour of the land that they wouldn't sell to the condo because they wanted to be a, stay being a little good, wonderful dive bar. And it's called the Thirsty Beaver. And it's small and awesome. And we're there for a couple of nights in a row. Yeah. The Thirsty Beaver. And it it could not take any more um, uh, promotion because it's a tiny little place with a really devoted following. So don't anybody go there,
2: but that's my (laughs) fave. Great answer. Thank you. All right, next one coming for you on the topic of drinking is uh, if you could have a drink with anybody in the world, dead or alive, uh, who would it be and why?
1: Well, uh, wow, if I could have a drink with anybody. You're really throwing the curveballs. I was already just talking about my grandfather. I could say that it would be nice <laughs> to have a glass of Dubonnet with my grandfather. How about that? Um, it's a pretty solid answer. I was 10. And so I knew him. Uh, yeah, I knew him as a, like a little 10 year old kid would, but I never got to um, knew, know him as a man. And I know he was not a drinking man, but. At, uh like after dinner, he would have a little glass of Dumonnay or uh some, some little wine like that, just to um sort of ride the rest of the day out and then stay up until two o'clock in the morning um and, and work on his books or work on his designs or something. And and so that would be pretty cool. Um that that's uh one thing that I long and I'm and 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 I miss that part of my life, but that's what you get. Um yeah. Uh Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that one, but I'm, I'm going to sit tight with my answer for starters. (laughs) That works
0: for us. Uh, Absolutely. So mine is if you, you know, being a part 135 pilot and have having flown a lot of interesting places up in your neck of the woods, if you could fly to any location in the world, where would that be?
1: Well, I, I kind of have a, you know, the bucket list that probably isn't going to ride out, but love to do some bush flying in Alaska. Um, I, I I've read a lot about it. I, I, um, I, the vastness of it, I'd like to have something that had like, you know, big gas tanks, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, that that would be a wonderful thing. I've never been to New Zealand. Karen and I want to go to New Zealand sometime, and I don't think that can ever happen. But, um, hey, somewhere where there's a lot of water because uh, I like landing on water.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually segues us really well into um, – kind of talking about what you're doing up at Bradford camps, especially to just to give people some ideas, and I'll let you explain it more. The first time that I heard about, you know, you and where you were and what you were doing was from one of my dad's friends, who is a float plane pilot, um, who goes up there, and I guess has, has been up to the Bradford camps. And, The first time I heard about this, you know, it was, oh, you can only get there by seaplane or driving, you know, for hours on dirt roads with no cell coverage. And I'm like, okay, well, that's like some wrong term type stuff, you know, but I would love to hear more about what you guys are doing up there. Talk a little bit about the camps. Um, We'll get into the Sikorsky weekend later, but just to give people an idea of the life that you live up, you know, in Northern Maine.
1: Let me just start by saying, um, you know, I grew up in Connecticut um, under the shadow of my grandfather's legacy, if you will. Uh, but I spent my summers in, in um, a remote section of Western Maine at uh, a lodge, kind of a boys camp slash sporting lodge. Um, and I was at the boys camp every summer from 10 years old all the way through college. Um, it's Cobb's Pierce Pond Camps and and it's just a near and dear part of my um, life and uh, and having spent all that time I, I sort of had in the back of my mind that's the ideal job to run a lodge in the middle of nowhere um, and have people come that you know, need a break from the world and, and, and you kind of take care of them and they catch fish and you get to go fishing every once in a while or hunting. And, and, and that was a dream that, um, in my mind was probably not going to happen. Um, but Karen and I got married And we decided that we would be just a couple and not raise a family. Um, It's kind of a conscious decision that we made, um, which opened the door to other possibilities. And one of them was like opening up the chapter of my dream of running a sporting camp. So we looked around and the God smiled on us because the Bradford camps just happened to be for sale at at the kind of the same time we were looking and uh, there's just nothing like it um, in Maine anyways. Uh, it's uh, the cabins are a hundred years old, but they're beautiful. There's no other cabins on the lake. Um, uh, it's a big lake, very flow plane friendly um, with a lot of other really good fishing destinations that are flow plane friendly. So, um, and, uh, and the, the community, atmosphere of bradford camps is uh is a big part of it we make all our meals in the lodge here and everyone comes in three times a day to sit down and tell everybody else how their day's going it's a real interesting um and friendly group of people that kind of collide here and get to know each other so that it's just a really dynamic social place but it's also uh, we generate our own power there's no cell phone coverage um, we uh, have to fly out for groceries or drive out like I said the two hours of dirt roads to drive out once a week and get groceries and 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 uh, so we're really an isolated little island here of uh, you know five people working together to take care of this group and and it's afforded me this wonderful opportunity of owning a float plane and and, and uh, being a northern main bush pilot and and that's that's super rewarding um, uh, from a lot of different aspects
0: actually it's interesting that you're kind of mentioning that I think right now in the world of general aviation bush flying is is booming you know at least on the social media side it seems like all you see is cool. pictures of you know of uh, bush pilots out and Western United States and Super Cubs, things like that. I think a lot of people forget that bush flying also includes, you know, the people landing 172s in the water. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your experiences in, you know, flying almost solely your 172 float plane, pretty much in more wilderness sure. than what most people experience.
1: I don't know how it differs from anything else because honestly, that plane out there, it's a Skyhawk that's got a lot of additions on it that make it a very good workforce. Um, I'm a 2,500-hour float plane pilot, 2,500-hour pilot. Um, however, 2,200 of those hours are in that particular aircraft. So that's basically all I know. Um, uh I, I'm, uh, you know, instrument rated and, uh, complex and all that stuff, but I fly this very powerful, but very simple version. Um, but you're correct. There, there are nuances up here The float flying, flying off of water adds a whole different dynamic. Um, the wind is always different. The, you know, the water conditions, uh, uh, can change rapidly and be very benign uh, in one hour and the next hour be pretty ugly on the same body of water. So your runways are always different. Um, and uh, uh, and there's also um, a lot of short water we fly out of and we fly heavy and we fly in the morning when it's cool and in the afternoon when it's hot. So conditions just change a lot. Um, and, uh, and it's all local weather. My flights are my flights are anywhere from six miles away to 25 miles away. So it's not not long distance flying, but um, but often. Um, my record last year was, uh, uh, or my, you know, the the, mo- the busiest day I had last year was, I think it was just 2.7 hours of tack time, um, but there were 22 takeoff and landings. So it was
0: twenty-two oh legs on two point seven <laughs>
1: hours. <laughs> that's so that's I, wild. Yeah, I, I wear out like the, I wear out the seat. I wear out the door handles. I, I the maintenance on the on this old airframe is you know wonderfully maintained aircraft. Um, I, my mechanic and I, you know, we we keep an eye on everything that's going on, but yeah, those funny things that that's the things, you know, I window latches and stuff, those things wear out quicker than, uh, uh, you know, quicker than uh, oil changes.
0: (laughs) You know, I I didn't even think about a lot of, a lot of that things. I mean, I I personally don't own my own aircraft. My father does, and I grew up flying with him. I can kind of relate to the legacy of aviation in that aspect, but I think that's something a lot of people don't think about when Considering a part 135 operation or something small like a 172, just the general wear and tear of in and out, in and out, you know, people just causing those small, not damages, but just wear and tear, you know, on, on your, on your aircraft.
1: Most of the waters I fly into do not have docks. So I'm coming up on a gravel shore, or you've got branches sticking out that you know the, the wind is going to rotate the aircraft one way or the other uh, when you're coming in, and you know you got to you got to look uh, twenty seconds down the road all day long, as in any flying. Um, but but there are uh, there are a lot of nuances for float flying into areas that are not developed. That uh, it's just it's really interesting. It keeps you on your toes and it keeps you sharp. And, um, and, uh, and it, yeah, makes for an interesting day for sure. Um, and, uh, but, uh, one of these days I'm going to get into a rotary and, and, uh, play around with that. I keep waiting for somebody to invite me like Igor Sikorsky, it's time for you to learn how to fly the helicopter. Um, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but hey, I'm not uh, so I'm not getting that call today. Maybe that's what you guys uh, want me on the program for. I don't know. Uh Maybe you got some <laughs> ace up your sleeve.
0: Hey, just go to any army installation. Go to their airfield. Show somebody an ID that says Igor Sikorsky third, and you'll probably get into a Black Hawk pretty quick.
1: <laughs> well, a lot. Uh, no, it, it's it is a dream. It's I I um I've actually this is a crazy little piece of knowledge and nothing that I'm embarrassed about or anything, but um, I have flown in a helicopter exactly one time. Um, So I've been in various aircraft on the ground, um, you know, as uh, tours of the Sikorsky plant, which is an unbelievable um, day to spend touring a plant. And you guys, it would be, I don't know where you all are actually, probably spread out, but, uh, But if we could pull it off, that would be a a wonderful day to spend um, going through the plant with you guys. Um, But, yeah, I flown once in a helicopter. It was a Sikorsky, thanks. And it was uh, um, an S-76, beautiful machine, um, flown by... uh, um, uh, Ray Altieri. Uh, he runs an organization out of Poughkeepsie, New York, which is selling, uh, helicopter shares to people who want to fly, uh, you know, back and forth from their house to New York city and Philadelphia and Washington, DC. And, um, anyways, we, we got into two helicopters. I, I got to, on my one flight, I got to fly next to Ray, um, uh, left seat in the Sikorsky 76 and we flew down the Hudson from Poughkeepsie by Manhattan around the Statue of Liberty back up over Fifth Avenue and over Yankee Stadium and at as soon as we got past Yankee Stadium he did give me control of the stick and let me bring it back to uh, Poughkeepsie that was uh, that was a pretty thrilling one ride I'll tell you I was pretty excited about
0: that <laughs> That sounds incredible.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I know. I I recently, I'm I'm working through some ratings myself on the fixed swing side, and I was like, hey, maybe I'll go over and see what they're, you know, what what it would take to 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 try to uh, get a type rating on the Robinson because we're all sixty guys. I was like, can't be that bad. And I go over there, and they're like, oh yeah, you need fifty hours, and it's six fifty an hour, and I was like, no. Nope. I'm not taking out another mortgage for, uh, for that. So, but I did have a quick question, which was about your, uh, float pl- yeah. flying. What prior to, you know, picking all your, uh, <clears throat> you know, places to land, I guess, bodies of water. Do you typically do like a low pass to check out the area and see what's going on? Or you just shoot, just shoot it. Or you're probably familiar with most by now, but <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, um, I'm going to call you Brett this time. Um, That's a great question. Um, So most of the water I fly into is water I'm very familiar with. Um, You know, we, we, but, but obviously there's, I do, you fly for the first time into a bunch of water. When I fly for the first time into water that I'm not familiar with, yeah, it's, it might be two or three circles, um, you know, you because um, one of the one of the most important parts of understanding water that you're about to fly into is how are you going to get out, um, and so you have to build your runway in your head um, of how you're going to get out of that water. Um, before you land on the water because you cannot see anything submerged from the water. So you need to have a real clear idea of, yeah, everything from, I mean, I do fly to town, so there are wires to worry about and all that business, but submerged uh, objects are a thing and, you know, people kayaking and float tubing and, and uh, 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 paddle boarding or anything like swimming. You know, swimmers, you can't see a swimmer. You know, that looks like a, you know, a, a lily pad floating on the water. So um, anyways, those, there are things that change and there are things just designing your takeoff route. Um, and uh, it is is very important for unfamiliar water. Um, for waters that I'm very familiar with, then yeah, I go straight in most often, keeping an eye on what might be in the runway uh, and, and in the way. But I know what the underside of the water looks like, so I, I don't have to plan that out. But yeah, but, you know, wind is always different. You know, there's a lot of waters that, that line up good for um, primary wind directions, but then there's always the errant sideways wind and trying to figure out, what, what downwind leg you want to use, um, you know, when, when there really isn't a, a, an upwind takeoff run. Um, some of my ponds I fly into, the runway is not straight. Um, the shape of the pond is curved or the shape of the river I'm landing in is not straight. So um, that means you have a wind direction that could be a tailwind uh, when you're trying to get the aircraft up on step which is a, a big part of float flying. If you're a little bit familiar with that, you know, from transitioning the aircraft from going really slow to getting up on step is, is uh, um, you know, you're not flying until you do that. And how much water you take to get the aircraft on step dictates how high you're going to be over the trees when you're not, when you don't have any more runway so um yeah so each pond is different and each wind is different and yeah the variables are uh, are always out there yeah i mean yeah. it's like you guys probably i mean you're flying you're flying uh helicopters into uh non-towered non-runway conditions. I mean you, you have you have all of that going on. So there's there's quite a similarity there that you need to understand going in what you got. And you also need to understand what you're gonna have when you cycle up.
2: What kind of uh death requirements sorry, do you have for uh for landing
1: uh you'll know it when you exceed it
2: <laughs> sorry
1: <laughs> um
0: no, no that's that's fair I'll, I'll show you a picture <laughs> of the plane
1: uh um, but, uh, so, you know, as I said, you have, um, what we call full displacement taxi when the aircraft are just going slow, sitting in the water and it's like a foot, you kind of sort of, man, I don't know whether it's nine inches or a foot or whatever. It depends on how heavily you're loaded, uh, with people and fuel and stuff. Um, when you are, um, on the run, and going 40 miles an hour up on step, then it's just a number of a couple of inches. You're just skimming across the water. So, but that that first uh, 12 seconds uh, is where you're really dragging all that heavy metal through the water, and you want to have all you need. But 12 inches, so you really you don't need a lot. Um, uh, but 12 inches doesn't mean you're happy with 13 either, <laughs> as you know you know. When the, when you're flying over and taking a look at your water, your unfamiliar water that you're about to land in, you're looking for black water, uh, and anything brown is suspicious. Anything brown is shallow, and that becomes where your runway, you know, that's not your runway. You're looking for the dark water.
0: With that being said, um, kind of just based off those visual references, is it safe to assume that you do not make those landings at night? I was just about to ask that. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, no, night landing is, yeah, I'm, you know, my 135 certificate is uh, daytime only and, and uh, the aircraft uh, is, well, I mean, it's equipped for night flying. Um, And as a private pilot, I am able to like, quite frankly, on a full moon night, there's a lot of daylight. I mean, you're casting shadows. So, um, but you're exactly right. I, yeah, the aircraft is tied up uh, um, on its ramp at nighttime. Um, It's always sort of inviting to consider a flight at night, smooth air and uh, a whole different visual, but even low light conditions and dusk um, and you're familiar with this too every it looks like you have lots of visibility when you're 800 feet up and you get down and once you drop below the tree lines it's the curtain comes down and you end up really in a different visual condition so you 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 need to have everything figured out before you get to that point um you know and have your airspeed managed and your altitude and your ad, you know everything has to be um lined up. And if you're in unfamiliar water, you're not going to do that. That's just, you're not, you're not flying in unfamiliar water in low light conditions here. Uh, but if I'm coming home back to Bradford camps late after a whatever, I'm not flying anybody, but if I'm coming back late, um, I have a 15,000 foot runway. So I have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of room to do, uh, you know, a power descent um, with a hold my attitude and wait for the water to come. And, you know, um, and then, yeah, I mean, you just, you hope that the log you can't see isn't there.
0: So understanding kind of your story, obviously you're a pilot. I, I'm curious to know how much of that, I, I understand that your grandfather passed away when you were young. Did your passion for aviation kind of stem from yep. that? I feel like it'd be safe to assume so.
1: I think, We might even all agree that as aviators, you didn't do this because you thought this was going to be a good job, you know, or something, you know, because, you you know, it was either this or go be a lawyer or something. When I was a kid, I just remember every time an airplane flew overhead, I I was going to stop whatever I was doing, and look and watch that plane go. I don't know, 30,000 feet up or 500 feet up, I'm watching that plane. And it's just in your blood. And so it... It was always and every single flight. We traveled a bunch just on vacations as a family growing up, and we'd be on Pan Am flights, um, you know, on these jets going to wherever we we're going, and that's the most exciting part of the vacation for me when I was a kid. So it was just a matter of time for me to finally figure out. Uh, that I had to learn how to fly. And I, happened one day, I had a, I guess they call it an epiphany, a road salesman for a company in Southern Maine thousand miles a week, driving, selling, uh, building products. Great, a great sort of post college job of, uh, freedom and fun and doing working in the building industry, which I love. And, and, uh, but I, I was 29 years old, and I, and I was driving through Lawrence, Massachusetts, and, and I said, I'm going to be 30, and I don't know how to land an airplane, and this is going to change right now, and I pulled off the exit, and the Lawrence uh, airport there, actually one of the runways, I think it's. I'm not sure what the approach is right over the highway. So I've been looking at this thing for like eight years and watching airplanes come in, you know, randomly as I'm going by. And, uh, and so I pulled into Lawrence and the first FBO there, and I walked into the desk and I said, can, you know, give me a, uh, give me my, the next lesson slot, tell me when it is. And, and uh, indeed I got a a solo done before I turned 30, but um, so yeah. Yeah. It's just in the
0: blood, isn't it? Absolutely. I would agree. Um, you know, I, I listened to another podcast that you did, and I've, I've read several articles that kind of talk about it. And something that I think um, resonates the most is your story. And, and we'll get more into that as we dive into more about the, the history of your grandfather. But you tell a story particularly about when you went to uh, the office with your grandfather and more so the path that he took to get through you know, to his office, I think resonated the most um, in terms of just how he immersed himself with his workers in that love of aviation, because it builds a community you know, everybody falls in love with each other's work and, you know, we'll, we'll dive more into that. I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder on, on that particular thing, but I think it's just something like I, I could visually oh, see oh, it, sure. you know, while, while you were talking about it, but I think that gives us a great segue um, to talk about a couple of things. One, I, I think a lot of people have the misconception or they just don't know um, the transition from Sikorsky from United Aircraft over to Lockheed Martin. Uh, they probably still associate you as being you know affiliated with you know Sikorsky helicopters um, as an individual more so than you know as you know as a descendant so we'll dive into all of that uh, what i'd like to kind of talk about specifically is the time frame and how you know Igor I kind of came up came to America and started this started this thing I think. As we all dive into aviation, we all made a lot of sacrifices, but I'm not sure many people made quite the sacrifice that he did uh, with the same persistence that he had.
1: The story is well known about my grandfather's um, uh, beginning days in aviation, but it's a wonderful uh, it 's a fairy tale story in a way it 's just a wonderful um, story of indeed persistence um, Sacrifice is a good word to look at from the outside but i would I would almost think that my grandfather never felt like he was sacrificing anything other than he was relying heavily on his family 's um, uh, support uh, moral financial, so he knew he knew it wasn 't just his own very whimsical desire to learn how to fly in one thousand nine hundred and eight um, it was it, he, he had the weight of responsibility of other people who supported him, so the story about my grandfather 's desire for aviation starts when he was ten years old. And he has a dream and he's flying in his dream. He knows he's in, um, kind of a first-class cabin. He's used to being in first-class trains in Russia, but he's 10 years old. It's around 19, uh, excuse me, 1900. Uh, and, um, and he, uh, is walking through this cabin and he can feel the vibration and he can feel the motion and it's like a train but he knows it's not a train and he walks into a cabin door he slides open the door and he looks out the window and he's 500 feet over an ocean and that vision in his dream woke him up out of bed um and and turned him had turned that night into a sleepless night of sort of this birth of passion that happened in him. So he's 10 years old in Russia, and this is, mind you, three years before the Wright brothers flew. Um, It is, uh, you know, the era of the balloon and the uh, era of maybe Otto Lilienthal's glider flights in the late 1800s, but flight was not a possibility. Uh, at that time. And um, so anyways, that dream stuck with him in Russia. And uh, uh, and yet uh, he went on to more normal uh, education and uh, through about his 17th year, um, at which point he realized that he had to make a break or make a decision with his life as to whether he was going to choose the easy path of um, what he knew would be uh, something he could do, and that would be become an engineer, um, uh, or whether he would follow his dream. And so at 17 years old, he, he dropped out of college and, uh, and went to his parents and said, I don't think I'm going to have a career in engineering like we talked about, uh, uh, I think I want to be a pilot. And and what's amazing to me is that his parents supported that. It would be like your child coming to you um, at 17 years old saying, mom, dad, I think I want to design an anti-gravity machine. Um, And so could I borrow some money And I'm not going to, I'm dropping out of school. I know my grades are pretty good, but I'm dropping out of school and I need to borrow some money because I want to go to New Orleans and New Orleans is where all the anti-gravity study is going on. So he borrows money from his parents, my great grandparents and flies or flies, (laughs) excuse me, takes a train to Paris, which is the birth of aviation in a way or the it's the heartbeat of aviation in the in in the 1910 era um and uh and, and 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 comes back with a bunch of ideas and comes home to build uh uh what he what was his first attempt at flying which was a helicopter in 1909 his first attempt um so a long-winded answer there um but uh he had a great little quote about that first helicopter um in 199 he said it had all of the characteristics of the modern helicopter this was a quote that he talked about lovingly with, uh in the S1 um in his later years he said it it uh it was tremendously loud. It created huge clouds of sm- of uh, of dust, and he said it had it had many fascinating vibrations. Uh, I love that. That had it was the vibrations weren't annoying. They weren't disturbing. They were fascinating vibrations. Uh, he did say it had one small technical difficulty. It wouldn't fly. That dream. Of, uh, of his a 10 years old spawned his career, if you will. Um, the helicopter was where he started um, in 1909, 1910. They were unsuccessful, but they were great test beds for learning how to approach aviation. Uh, through just some intuition realized that the helicopter's era was not ready yet. So he turned his attention to fixed wing airplanes and had a tremendous career. Had he never immigrated to America and had he just rested on his laurels of his eight years of flying airplanes, he would be an aviation great. In the 1910 to 1917 years, he built the world's first enclosed cockpit Aircraft. He built the world's first multiple engined aircraft. The largest aircraft for its time was the Ely Mormitz, which was uh, indeed the largest aircraft for almost two years, I believe. And for almost two years, he was the world's only multi engined instructor of aircraft. So many other firsts, many longest firsts. And so but I, I, and I'm glad to revisit uh, all those ideas with different questions. If you want to head me in different directions, I, I have uh, a little bit of a tendency of talking without punctuation. So,
0: so one thing I am one thing I am curious about. Um, is kind of that first for him in terms of, you know, what was that first airplane that he got to fly? I'm curious if he recorded what that experience was like, and then at what point did he decide that, Hey, you know, I need to go to America to be able to develop my dreams into something more and how that looked for, uh, for Igor.
1: Those are all great questions about uh, his early career in Russia. So, his first airplanes after abandoning or postponing the helicopter in Russia uh, for the time being, he went to fixed wing aircraft. Now, his fixed wing aircraft designs and construction and piloting were based on his experience, which basically was Zero training, no time in a cockpit, and never having designed or built an airplane before. So this was true seat-of-the-pants design work. The S-1, his first airplane, uh, I should say S-1, his H-1 and H-2 helicopters were 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 uh, temporarily postponed. And the S1 was uh, a very light, it would be an ultralight by today's standards. And it was powered by a 15 horsepower Anzani motor. So I believe it's total gross was something in the order of 700 pounds. Um, bicycle tires and a little drag stick for the tail. Uh, he had never designed a plane he had never built a plane, and he never sat in a cockpit and pushed the throttle forward, and he did so with the S-1. And in his words, he said, the results were rather predictable. <laughs> so he he uh, the S-1, uh, and in my words, fortunately, the S-1 didn't fly because had it flown, he might have found himself 40 feet above the trees and not knowing what to do In fact, the word uh, airfoil stall had not even been coined yet. So the understanding of uh, why airplanes fly, how they fly, dynamic stability, dihedral, center of lift was not even designed uh, or understood in a wing at this point. so center of the center of gravity of an aircraft which you knew was very important you certainly want the center of gravity of your aircraft near the center of lift they had that wrong by a long distance for a long time which caused aircraft to nose up stall which they they couldn't really understand. So that's all those early aircraft, not all, but many ended up nose first in the ground, and they kept moving the center of gravity back, thinking, well, if people keep diving into the ground, we better move that center of gravity back. So that's a lot of detail. But my point is, um, he needed to use his intuition to figure out how strong to build the tail, how far apart to set the two wings from each other, their biplanes. Um, Where would the pilot sit? What is the uh, mechanism to get the three axes to make the airplane move? Um, And it's interesting to note even that all of his aircraft in Russia, um, had opposite rudder pedals. What I mean by that is, if you pushed on the left rudder pedal, it would cause the aircraft to yaw to the right. You actually crossed the wires. You always thought that that was more intuitive and more, um, the, more the way an airplane should fly. Push the left foot forward, and it'll force the left side of the aircraft to go a little bit faster and veer the aircraft around to the right. And, that, the the current uh, way of flying aircraft is completely opposite but uh, but all of his aircraft in Russia were were flown with the wires crossed um, so his first airplanes in Russia the s1 s2 s3 s4 the first four were his own design, his own construction. He had a few helpful workers and lots of volunteers. Those four aircraft accumulated a flight time of less than eight minutes. So it was, uh, as he said, uh, uh, an experimental stage and uh, where he learned not only how to build, not only how to design, but how to fly. Um, there's the phenomenon known as a ground loop um, in which in any tailwheel aircraft, uh, the, when you're going at a fairly high speed down your runway um, at certain speeds, at slower speeds, your tail actually wants to get in front of your nose the aircraft wants to rotate and go backwards if you will it's called a ground loop he didn't know what a ground loop was until he performed it about 30 times in the s1 and he finally got the technique down of of rapid and full opposite rudder to stop the ground loop uh, in its initial incipient stage and and So he taught himself um, how to high-speed taxi this little S1 with the 15-horsepower motor. He taught himself how to taxi, which you'd better know how to taxi before you learn how to fly. So uh, uh, that's why it probably was a good thing that it was a lightly-powered aircraft. It gave him him some foot uh, manners, if you will. Um uh, so what happens for my grandfather during the uh during the eras uh, the, that the Russian era of nineteen ten through nineteen seventeen is many different things, a wild expansion of aviation worldwide. Um uh, uh, flies the channel. Um uh So many great advances were made in that. And Russia, there also were great advances. And largely, my grandfather's work were those great advances. Um, As I mentioned, the, the first enclosed cockpit. And so my grandfather, after the first four, the S1 through S4, where he basically is learning a little bit at a time with each aircraft, each aircraft resulting in some broken wood and some bruises. Um, He makes his first real success with the S5. His first planned flight that is completed as per the plan is with his fifth airplane which was a takeoff and a circle and a landing. It was his first time he actually landed where he wanted to land the aircraft. And this was a 50 horsepower uh, design and it was succeeded with many other uh, very well-built and successful single engine airplanes. He won some competitions. Uh, there were many aviation competitions in the era of 1910, 11, 12, the uh, military competitions because they realized the importance of the airplane. And he started to win some of these competitions. <clears throat> and during one of these competitions, he had a forced landing caused by a mosquito in the carburetor jet, plugged off the fuel, brought the airplane down, you know, brought a 1,300-pound airplane to the ground, smashed a bunch of stuff. He did not get hurt. Somehow he survives uh, numerous crash landings in his life, including onboard fires, which were extinguished with overcoats. Um, But he he realizes with this mosquito event that the airplane is destined to have more than one engine. This is a completely radical theory at the time. Um, there's no way an airplane can have more than one engine because center of thrust is mandatory. So more than one engine would mean when one engine goes out, which it will, you know it will, it just did, uh, you will not be able to main control, maintain control because you'll have only one engine working on one side of the plane and it'll spin. <coughs> well, he decided that the math is allowing uh, one engine to operate and one engine not to operate. He can get uh, design on paper to work, so he's going to build, and he does indeed build the first multi-engineer plane. It was a 4 engine aircraft. Uh, he went big. It was a 400 horsepower for 100 horsepower engines. Um, and a near 100-foot wingspan aircraft. Uh, it weighed over 9,000 pounds in an era when aircraft were weighing below 2,000 pounds. It's an incredible leap forward. Um, it flew on its first flight. It, it proved itself. Um, and it, it, this same aircraft happened to be also the first enclosed cockpit. So uh, which was another dynamic advancement—an um, advancement in comfort. Imagine Russian winters in an open airplane, open cockpit airplane. So he he realized the future of aviation was was going to be in warm, comfortable, enclosed air, airplanes with the safety of multiple engines which could go long distances and take passengers. He saw that long before passenger service, decade before or decades before passenger service ever happened in the world. Um, So uh, in Russia, backward country in Russia at the time, still a horse and buggy country, he is leading the world in the development of commercial aviation. The Russian Revolution put an end to all that.
0: Is that kind of what spawned him, the, or I guess particularly or specifically, leaving Russia for the United States?
1: The, what happened, it was a World War I era with the Axis powers getting fought from Russia on one side and uh, Europe on the other side. And uh, my grandfather's airplanes were... Very uh, consequential to surveillance and bombing on the um, on the Russian front, on the Western front, and um, and what that means is my grandfather was training and working with generals and working with pilots of the Tsarist military. So he's very entwined with the whole czarist government in that regard. In fact, as an aside, um, he met Tsar Nicholas II uh, uh, and they met a number of times um, alone on board the, some of his large aircraft and they had long conversations about aviation and the future of aviation and, in fact, the certain aircrafts that they were on. And it was a close enough relationship that um, as a thank you gift, I guess, Czar Nicholas gave my grandfather a, a, a pocket watch. Um, and it's not just a little pocket watch. It's a beautiful gold, ruby-encrusted... Uh, diamond pocket watch, it's a beautiful, beautiful keepsake and it's, it is the most important keepsake of my grandfathers and indeed the families. Um, so uh, the failure of the war and the, the, the harsh conditions of, of, uh, of Russia at the time with um, bread riots, And all that caused this revolution. Uh, And I shouldn't say failure of the war, but the hardship of the war and uh, the crop failures caused the Russian Revolution. My grandfather knew everybody you're not supposed to know in a revolution, um, including the czar and generals. And so... uh, uh, it literally he was there during the unrest, during the shootings and the assassinations and the executions. Um, and it was very clear that his life was in danger. Uh, so as a temporary measure, indeed with all the intent of coming back to Russia when this nonsense of the revolution goes away and things get back to normal, uh, he leaves to go to Paris, um, where he works for the end of the war. And, and the revolution never really went away and never calmed down. And it settled into the Soviet empire. And he could see that coming. And he could see his inability to return to his mother, Russia. So he, um, as so many immigrants have, left. Uh, wherever he was and came to what he considered the land of opportunity and arrived, uh, through Ellis Island. <clears throat> I actually have the, uh, the manifest, you know, where everybody signs in from the boat they come in on and Ellis Island. And, uh, uh I have, uh, have a copy of that page, which is, uh, kind of a fascinating little piece of history. And, uh, yeah, he lands in Queens, the area of Queens, New York, which is sort of known as Little Russia, and begins a new, the new era of his life. Can't speak English. He has basically no money. He's got a bunch of drawings uh, of aircraft that he's designed and built in Russia, but he's an unheard of nobody immigrant in in America at the time. uh, and, uh
0: so now yeah, just to give people a scope uh, of reference, this is what I believe the date was what March 30th. Is it 1929 or 39?
1: So this would be 19. He arrives in America in
0: 1919. Or 1919.
1: I was so, 10 years so, off on that one. And so he he spends about a year in Paris. And and the war, the armistice is signed, the war is concluded. Or Temporarily postponed, let's say, and he ends up in arriving in America in 1919, again, penniless, can't speak English, but he has some contacts where he can um, begin uh, to put some roots down in the sort of New York area of Russia and he, uh, of the United States, <clears throat> and he loved, uh, he, he, he was in love with America from the first day forward. And with the uh, modernness of it, with the energy and the exuberance and the dynamic nature, he could see possibilities. It was a big country uh, geographically, so he knew that aviation was going to play a part. Um, and yet, he had no money and he didn't know anybody, and he had no jobs, and he can't speak English, and nobody knew who he was. All of his successes in Russia didn't translate to to America. And furthermore, the war was over, this crazy contraption called the airplane, um, you know, yeah, okay, one pilot, and one or two more people, and you gotta sit outside, and it's going to be cold and you're going to get oil in your face. And so it. it people didn't understand that commercial aviation was a possibility because they thought uh, at that time still airplanes would be regulated to small single engine outdoor cockpit design. So it was a number of years before my grandfather was able to get back into aviation to scrape together enough money to have almost really influenced by the Russian immigrant uh, population in, in the area of Queens where, where this Russian immigrant population was like, Igor, you're an amazing designer. You're an amazing builder. Get, let's get going. I'll help you. My wife's got a job as a secretary or a waitress. I don't even have a job. I'll just work for you. You don't have to pay me. Um, So around 1923, um, a small aviation concern, Sikorsky Aviation, was formed um, to build airplanes. And it was largely, I would have to say, volunteer labor because... The 29 employees at the original Sikorsky Aviation uh, Company were did not receive a paycheck for some 18 months. <laughs> so that is gives you an idea of some dedication that these people had to working with Igor. Um, he had a demeanor that was it's hard to describe, but it was it was an attractive, calm, deeply knowledgeable, deeply empathetic nature that I believe persists to this day in the plant. Um, I I still feel it, and I still ask about that. Somehow, dedication in the Sikorsky plant is still lives on today, and was begun back in 1923-24 with my grandfather. So they they began building the S-29, which is his 29th design, the S-29A for America, in a chicken farm in the backyard of a chicken farm. So the plane is built outside. They are uh, rummaging through the scrap heaps of the dump um, to find parts that they could build an airplane out of. They got a car bumper that they cut and formed into an aluminum pair of shears to cut the aluminum for this aircraft. At one time, a hospital replaced all of its beds uh, and threw out some 300 bed frames into the dump, and the Sikorsky uh, employee volunteer group went there with everything they could to take these beds apart and use the metal uh, for the S-29, um, largely the S-29s the frame was built out of discarded hospital bed frames, um, so a ragtag group of dedicated, unpaid employees uh, began the Sikorsky career. Uh, The airplane eventually was built. It was a very successful one-off production, two-engined aircraft, um, two Liberty Motors, um, uh, 400 horsepower on each side, and it could carry 14 passengers. It was capable of, it was the first commercial airliner uh, capable of flying under full gross load with one engine shut down, um, never had an uh, accident, and uh, eventually was uh, bought by some uh, unknown person named Howard Hughes. And it was used in his uh, movie, The, uh, it's called Hell's Angels, which uh, they recently did uh, uh, the Aviator movie uh, recently, uh, talks about that. But uh, so that one aircraft a little bit put him on the map or at least kept the dream alive.
0: Um, yeah, With that particular aircraft and that purchase from Howard Hughes, is that kind of what drew United Aircraft to want to, I guess be the parent company of Sikorsky like how did how did that transition kind of work because I feel like that's what really made Sikorsky kind of boom at that point
1: no question about it the the arrival of United Aircraft on the scene of my grandfather is what finally put Igor Sikorsky on the aviation map in America the years of 1924 to 29 were very lean years for Igor. Um, there was the S-29 all the way through the S-37. So nine designs, I guess. And those, all of those designs were one-off designs. So if you're an aircraft manufacturer, if you manufacture anything and you're only building one, of anything you manufacture, you are not doing well. Um, so they they were a struggling company. Um, but, again, still with the same dedicated staff all the way through, building very, very good airplanes. It just, the aviation had not taken root yet. So there wasn't a need for multiple airplanes. Um, so... Sikorsky, though had this great experience developed with the new technology of engines and new technology with aluminum and new technology with uh, cantilever wings and uh, it 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 was keeping up with new technology by all this hard work and and uh very slim slim living at the same time. Aviation is born on a commercial level. So along comes a man named Juan Tripp who is decides that commercial aviation, he is going to be the forefront of it and he starts his Pan Am company. Most importantly, along comes a tall fellow named Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh with his epic flight in 1927 flew and not just landed on the continent, not just landed in a country, but landed in his intended airport in Paris after a 33-hour flight, all of a sudden, the world realized commercial aviation can happen. Um, At the same time, in this little plant, and that Sikorsky is managing and running with a number of two in the 30s employees. At the same time, Igor lands on the idea of a flying boat. The flying boat is the opening door for the success of Sikorsky, and it's the opening door for this, the beginning of commercial aviation. So if you think about it, there there are airports before there are airplanes. And there just aren't many airports. And the bigger the plane, the bigger the airport, but they're just, that's not been developed. However, big cities across the country are built near big water. Miami, Baltimore, Boston, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, all these big cities, uh, points of intended travel are built where a big airplane can land. So somehow by tuition, intuition, Igor decides that that the birth of aviation and his foothold will be begun with an amphibious plane, and he builds the S-38. The S-38 is a, a bizarre-looking plane by today's standard. I. I it's, it's one of the most elegant schemes of an aircraft I've ever seen, and I love its looks, but by today's standards, it is ridiculous. It's uh, full of struts and wires. It has a What they call a parasol wing is a complete wing that's unattached to the fuselage. Below the wing and unattached to the wing are uh, two engines that are connected by struts. And below that is a fuselage that's slung on its own, connected by struts and wires. And behind all of that strut and wire connection stuff, way in the back by connected by wires and two booms is the tail. So uh, it it was lovingly referred to as a collection of spare parts flying in extremely close formation.
0: (laughs) Spencer actually just sent us a photo to give you some context of that aircraft. And it is, it is incredible looking. And I don't know that I would personally get in that or fly that, but that's also why I'm not an aviation pioneer like your grandfather was.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, this aircraft filled its role perfectly. It could, it was a, I don't know, it was a 700, 800 mile aircraft. It could fly hundred miles an hour, 110 miles an hour. It could carry six passengers, and pilot, co-pilot. It could land on unimproved land runway and it could land on any water. It was the perfect machine for its era, rugged. Uh, and you know, Pratt & Whitney engines, Hamilton standard propellers, uh, it, it was a state of the art. It was bought by uh, rich people who wanted to go somewhere fast and 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 believe me, 100 plus miles an hour was fast then. 700 miles was huge. Uh, this broke all of the standards. Uh, Not by today's. Uh, And uh, not only did they go from trying to build one of a kind for about five years, but they decided that they would build 10 at one time. Somehow they scraped together. It was a a family, a wealthy family in Lemonster, Massachusetts that supported them and they scraped together enough money to build 10. At a time of these aircraft, before anyone got out of the factory, all ten were sold. Hadn't even flown yet, and they'd sold all ten. This was the largest production of Sikorsky airplanes, uh, I think, ever. Actually, they built some hundred and ten or twenty of them. They and one trip got a hold of these, and he bought and that. So the beginning of Pan Am. Uh, was the foundation of Pan Am's commercial career was in Sikorsky S-38s, mm-hmm. and pioneering routes all the way down to Buenos Aires. Um, and and practicing over ocean flight for what inevitably, inevitably would be transatlantic and transpacific flying, which Pan Am pioneered and which my grandfather built, designed and built the airplanes for both of those oceans. That One aircraft, the S-38, more than any other American aircraft to its day, um, got Igor Sikorsky to a comfortable place where, where he could comfortably, without fear of hunger, could Pursue his career. And in fact, he said, This is a great quote of his. He said, Early aviation, my early days in Russia, my early days in America, he said, We were building airplanes out of substandard parts and uh, with people who didn't know how to build an airplane and a person who didn't know exactly how to design an aircraft. Um, And he said, But the greatest risk to our health was starvation.
0: I mean that that's absolutely incredible too that it took that. You know, I when I when I listen to that, I'm almost surprised that United Aircraft Corporation didn't almost take them under the wing and fund the creation of those airplanes to begin with, you know, rather than having to get an outside investor to do that. But I think a lot of people um misunderstand, you know, the aspect because Sikorsky, especially, I mean, you're talking to three helicopter pilots. I've Prior, I never really associated the Sikorsky name with any type of airplane. I, I I just didn't know until I started doing research because I always accredited Sikorsky with the helicopter. And I think what the what was it after United had um, not bought but you know took Sikorsky under the wing, um, they started. Did they immediately start the development of the VS three hundred? What kind of led them to back to the helicopter side? Because I feel like at this point, Igor had been doing the airplane thing for almost 20 years. So what kind of drove him to go back to developing the helicopter? Cause I feel like that would take some convincing as well to your investors, to your parent corporation to say, Hey, we know that we've had all this success, but this is something we <laughs> want to do.
1: You are hitting on the salient points of my grandfather's career uh and perfectly asking the questions and thank you they're great uh i would like to first say that uh, the success of the 38 did cause united aircraft to say there's something going on with that ragtag group of russian emigrant people who largely can't even speak english but they're building some stuff we need him on our team and they approached my grandfather and and made an offer in some office in New York City that we will take care of. Uh, we would like you to work for us and what 's important in the Igor Sikorsky story is that that was a great day. Please buy my company do all of the hard work of managing uh, the loans and managing the financing. Let me just design the aircraft. And and so it was a great day. But the important point is that Igor said, I want you to know that I will not be able to do this, and I will not be able to work for you unless I can have my group that's been with me all along during these lean years because they are the core of the creative genius. And there was, it wasn't just Igor. There were a number of very, uh, very effective airfoil designers, very effective, the, just the design of aircraft. He was reliant on very intelligent people. It wasn't a one man show, which does a little bit get to, um, the Igor Sikorsky, as an engineer, and as you had mentioned, uh, as, as soon as he was bought by United Aircraft, and he could relax a little bit about the financial part and just concentrate on the engineering, he, to his retiring days, set up his office near the engineering department so that he would be a part of that. That's where he was most comfortable and most active and and uh, and and had his that's where his heart held. So what happens United Aircraft buys Sikorsky. they build these S-38s and flying boats. Uh, they expand Pan Am requires bigger boats, faster boats, uh, longer range, and 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 with the express desire to conquer the oceans. Um, And indeed the first commercial flights across both oceans were with Pan Am in Sikorsky aircraft. This era of flying boats is a short lived, wonderful era of aviation of basically the 1930s. And, and, And it fit that little window when airports hadn't really been designed yet, but, but people want to fly. So, uh, and that little window was short, was short lived. As I said, by the end of the thirties, airports are being built all around big cities. And it's realized that, uh, A faster airplane is a cylindrical shape that can fold its wheels inside and doesn't require that complex shape of a flying boat um, that actually creates drag. So so the era of the flying boat, the the close of that chapter, um, could have been the close of the chapter of Sikorsky. And in fact, was the close of the chapter of the Sikorsky aviation or the Sikorsky flying boat era. And uh, there was a particular day when Igor uh, got a call, uh, got an office visit from one of the higher ups of United Aircraft, whose job it was to lay basically to lay Igor off and close the flying boat plant. This would be. Because the orders weren't coming in, flying boats are just not needed anymore. Because we have, uh, we have the DC threes are coming out, and you know, good, solid aircraft that land on runways. And uh, so he Igor listens to the reasoning why we can't close the plant. We have we we don't have any orders, and we have to close the plant. And uh, with a twinkle in his eye, he says, no, sir, I have been living my life with financial hardship where my home country becomes ruined by revolution. Um, and, and so this little minor uh, uh, setback of of not needing my aircraft anymore. This is something we all overcome. This is no big deal. And he said, I have been working on one little idea um, that I would like to propose if you give me uh, about two years and a minor amount of some $30,000 I do believe I will have a practical helicopter for you. And this would have been um, around 1938, around the dawn of the of the Second World War, that he goes into the final stage of his career, which is designing the helicopter. Um, and indeed, uh, in less than one year, he does build with his team a helicopter that got all four wheels off the ground for a few seconds. It was um, two years later that they had full uh, practical flying
0: machine. To my understanding, just to paint a picture for our listeners, this first helicopter, the VS-300, when you say the first practical helicopter, it's the first helicopter to have both a main and a tail rotor system on it.
1: That's correct. So this, uh, his move to from the flying boat era to the helicopter was, in his words, like living his life again. He had never, uh, he had tried to build a helicopter some thirty years before. Um, with zero success, the nobody really knew how to build a helicopter. Nobody really knew how to. Nobody knew how to fly a helicopter. Um, nobody knew how to design a helicopter. Nobody knew what the cockpit setup. How what's a control arrangement? Um, should it be uh, perhaps a twin screw lift? Should it be counter coaxial counter rotational? Um, In some far deep recess of my grandfather's mind, his intuition told him, put all you can into a single lifting rotor, use all that you need, no more for a counter rotational anti-torque tail rotor. And that will be the solution that will be the easiest to solve and the most practical, having no reason to head this way from any information available at the time, relying only on his intuition, he lands on this design and what is fascinating and amazing and really tells you about his genius is that today 95% of all helicopters flown in the world are a single lifting rotor and a single anti-torque tail design. So his, his initial concept is perhaps proved to be the right way to do it, or not necessarily the only way to do it, but the most practical way to do it for most applications. It took an incredible uh, amount of work from a lot of different people. As I said, they had no idea where to put all the controls. The early configurations of the VS300 had only one foot pedal. It didn't even have anything for your left foot to do, (laughs) Um, because it relied on a little bit of right rudder for anti-torque and not right rudder to let the torque do the work. but uh, um, they had a tremendous amount of work to do in just figuring out what, uh, what a rotor diameter, what the rotor speed should be. I am going to speak outside of my own knowledge base and way, delve deeply way into your knowledge base here. And please excuse me if I get some of this wrong, but they had to begin to understand without any uh, known knowledge um, what lead and lag were doing to the rotor, what uh, flapping was doing for the rotor, um, and how all of those vibrations were going to get managed and um and it and it's it's just an unbelievable and all of this was solved with slide rules there were not any computers doing any work either there were no slow motion cameras or anything it was it was at one point Igor built a platform on the side of the VS 300 where Les Morris flew the aircraft in hover uh, but they were trying to trace down some annoying let's call it fascinating vibration and igor stood on the platform on the side of the aircraft and held different parts of below the rotor held different parts to try and zero in on where the vibration might be coming from that's the kind of intuition that they, that he relied on and the kind of design work that brought it to its success
0: this paved the way for pretty much the the future in terms of the timing and everything else, because you're introducing this new form of aviation, right? At kind of a, a time of war when they don't have this capability at the, you know, quite yet. It's not fully developed quite yet, but I'm sure with somebody like United Aircraft backing you, they're of course wanting to see the production and they look at the war and see a potential value in utilizing this on a military front, which I'm curious... Do you think the timing coupled with uh, the newly introduced lift capability was was something that was planned? Or, you know, what kind of drove them to kind of market towards the military um, when this was all being developed? Or did the military approach them for this capability?
1: Um, I am not sure. It was very clear from the beginning of that when the helicopter was first flown successfully backwards, forwards, landing in tight areas, landing on rooftops, hovering and receiving packages, it was very clear, the imagination could go anywhere, that this was a machine that was by my grandfather's words and many, it was easy to envision it being helpful, useful in all manner of civilian, commercial and military use. Um, Evacuating wounded soldiers, getting downed aircraft out of the woods, and as well for reconnaissance and, uh, and then delivery of troops, it was uh, delivery of troops from ships to shore. It, they, it just blossomed with possibility, and it really uh, very quickly was seen as, um, you know, how much more power do we need to get something else? to out of this machine, uh, endurance, payload, altitude, all of the above. Um, So the first production helicopter uh, was the R-4. So that was basically the helicopter number two, the one right after uh, the the VS-300 was the R-4 and the army um, placed an order for the R-4. Uh, right then. So the first production helicopter was, was supported by an army contract uh, because they knew we're going to be able to do something with this. Absolutely. It was often running really from, from before the VS 300 broke the world's record of an hour and 40 minutes. They already had work on the army contract for the R4. You know, there were, it, it was that, that, accelerated. The R4 did uh, see a little bit of service in World War II. There was one rescue with an R4 from a downed airman uh, uh, brought out of the jungle and Southeast Asia or uh, Philippines or something. Um, uh, but yeah, so a little bit of service in World War II and certainly a ton of service in Korea.
0: You know, what's interesting too is for the majority, I would say the majority of our listeners do come from that army aviation community, specifically rotary wing. We have a couple fixed wing listeners from different, from different areas of, uh, of aviation. But we do also get a lot of listeners that are interested in in aviation and things along those lines or, you know, becoming a military pilot or just learning to fly. And so they bring a lot of those questions. So I think the history of it's really incredible. um, Because as you're talking about you know, some of these early, you know, early helicopters that the Army ordered. For us, it's interesting because down at Fort Rucker in Alabama, I'm not sure if you've been able to go to the Army Aviation Museum, but they have on display some of these early, wow. you know, some of these early helicopters that were from uh, Sikorsky. It's an it's a incredible, you know, an incredible tribute to the early days of Army Rotary Wing Aviation, and I highly recommend if you get a chance, you know, going down there and, and checking it out. I think that you would thoroughly enjoy it. I
1: will. I look forward to that. So yeah, it's on the list. I'm, I'd
0: love it. Kind of transitioning a little bit. Um, I think that paints an incredible picture of the early days of particularly Army aviation and how we kind of came about and the Sikorsky name and its influence on the development of aviation, not just in the United States, but worldwide. But with that, I, I think that a lot of people don't realize quite the impact that that Sikorsky has had across an entire community. Um, and that particular being in Stratford, Connecticut. You know, I've listened to a couple of stories about um You know, just how much Sikorsky and you know the the family and the corporation has done for that community, but also, I think we tend to focus in and say, "Oh, as aviators, we all have this community, but as a company, um, you know they do some pretty cool things, particularly one thing that stood out, and of course, all of us you know enjoying a beer every once in a while, uh, thought it to be pretty interesting, but the two roads brewing that does you know the tribute to your grandfather. Or two, I should yeah. say, Sikorsky every year uh, with the road less traveled Russian stout. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting to listen. You know how they invite the family members there to to share the history um, of Sikorsky and and how all the people show yeah. up. And you know what? What's your, I should say, what's your interpretation or your experience with with this event and interacting with these people?
1: Um, yeah, it Two Roads Brewery is. Uh, just a fantastic. Uh, well, it's great beer, um, but their sort of return to community and support of community. I mean, they're they are in uh, you know right down the road from the Sikorsky plant, um, and um, you know they recognize. Uh, um, the family value, I guess, uh, of what Sikorsky has, Sikorsky as a plant uh, and as a company has um, sort of uh, created this community over the decades. And and they just are happy to honor that. Um, so they have invited us family members to be a part of the celebration of um, Igor Day, if you will. So, there's sometime in the spring every year, and the line is out the door, it's 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 remarkable. Uh, beer, uh, beer aficionados, because it is very good imperial stout, it's amazing stuff. Uh, they put a different uh, spin on it every year, um, but also by and large, Sikorsky employees' sons. Daughters, granddaughters, grandsons, uncles, cousins, aunts. Every It seems like everybody has at least three people who they're related to that work at Sikorsky. You know, I'm there and my uncles are there. My dad is there. He's Igor. And I have an Uncle Sergey, and an Uncle Nicky and Uncle George, who's passed away, has been there. And we're there with the brewer, um, with Phil, and we're there with uh, the artist who does the labels, and we're all signing bottles together, and the line's out the door of people who, you know, they want to get their 24 ounce bottles of Igor's Dream signed by all of us, Uh, but they also have a story to tell. So the line is really slow, and as you can tell from me, I kind of go on and on <laughs> talking about stories, and love hearing from them too. Yeah, it's a great community service, if you will, that 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 uh, Two Roads does, and it's it's a fun day. I got a bunch of high school friends that come out, and and uh, we get to reconnect there also, and and uh, yeah, I mean, I I have nothing to do with Sikorsky aircraft at this point and never have. And my father never did. Uncle Sergey, who is the eldest son of my grandfather has been a career in service with Sikorsky for his career, just celebrating. And are you listening? Just celebrating his 70th year of working with Sikorsky. So that's, that's crazy. A pretty good career, but none of the other Brothers and other family members have been involved with Sikorsky from a sort of employee standpoint. We all, though, are involved with the history uh, and supporting uh, supporting our heritage and our history with uh, with the oral tradition. And hey, Two Roads Brewery is a part of that too. They're doing they're they're doing that also. They really uh, it's a good group of guys there and girls and people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that you kind of nailed it with people having their own stories. I know you've talked pri- uh, previously about how many descendants of even those original Russian immigrant workers that still to this day work for Sikorsky yep. and maintain, you know, being part of that family.
1: Are you guys familiar with why a helicopter
0: pilot's on the right? We fly we fly both right and left, but all yep. the single pilot operations pretty much set the right seat, so I'm not sure.
1: That's right. The conventional standard for a long time was right, and you're right about that. I think the Robinson's on the right. So that formed because um, with tandem seating, they both had a stick, but they only had a single collective throttle. And that it was deemed the pilot needed a right hand for the stick and the left hand for the collective throttle. And that collective throttle would be in the middle of the two seats, but it put the pilot on the right side that's my understanding of, of how that original convention began um, that and I know you guys fly now now the collective throttles on both sides and married and all that stuff so but in the beginning those aircraft had just a single one between the seats pretty cool um, I have beautiful close-up photos of the vs 300s initial mixer at the top that that it's just you could see sort of how it tried to start out simple, but it just started getting added to the very small uh rotor head actually in diameter and 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 I think over time that rotor head size is is uh you know for the whatever the, the more I talk about that, the more you'll know i don't know
0: a complete work of of engineering yeah. genius honestly yeah. With every aviator that we've had on, whether it's a lesson that you've learned um, through the study and through your experiences with your grandfather, or whether it's one that you've developed by you know yourself through your part 135 operations and your passion of flying over a couple thousand hours, if you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's embarking on a career in aviation or who wants to seek out a career in aviation, be it Civilian, military, commercial, whatever it may be, what would that piece of advice be?
1: It would have to be listen to your dreams. Um, Like I was saying, I think if you have it in your blood that you want to be an aviator, maybe you're not quite an aviator yet, or you just think you might want to be, there's only one thing to do because it will always, it will never leave you. You will always want that. Just do it. And whether it's what I tell people who, I get people who sit in my plane next to me and and it's like, I always wanted to learn how to fly. Well, it's easy to go down to the local airport and get a hundred dollar lesson. Um, anybody can do that. And and then you'll know if you want a second lesson, maybe take it, you know, the $1,500, $2,000 it takes to get to your solo. Um, and then you can say, I did that, check that off of this, or you can say, no, I really want to get my license. No, I really want to buy a $15,000, you know, one fifty two. or no, I, I want to fly the big stuff, the heavy metal. I want to go in the military and fly the new, you know, you can make, you can make it happen and it can be on your own with your own little airplane, or it could be doing the great work of the military, you, or, you know, bush flying in northern Maine, but it won't happen unless you actually pull off the highway and get into the first FBO you see and sign up for a lesson. Just take that one step, just like anything. So there's one, uh, there's one thing that really I like to say about my grandfather's life that I, it sends chills down my spine every time I think about it. His life and, and the expanse of his life began in 1889, uh, which is 14 years before the Wright Brothers flew and pretty much 20 years before aviation really began. Many people flying, if you will, or 18 years before aviation began and he spent his life in aviation from 18 years old until the day he died in 72. At 70, in 72, he was 83 years old. But in that time, his life beginning when aviation was not possible, a few years before his death, he sat down at a table and had dinner with Neil Armstrong after Neil walked on the moon. And that's all one life, Neil was picked up out of the water by a Sikorsky helicopter and brought back to the deck and to have one life numerous dreams but one dream of aviation and fulfilled and supported and helped so many other people in careers and in life save and in the good cause one that's it's an amazing there's not many at all, a handful of people in, in the history of man that has achieved that level of success and good success.
0: I appreciate you sharing with us um, this history. I think this has been a great uh, tribute to the history of aviation, specifically rotary wing aviation and fixed wing alike, and a great tribute to your grandfather who, who had, you know, proven to be one of the greatest pioneers in in aviation history worldwide.
1: That's a great thing. Really appreciate the time. And do you guys remember where you're going to go when you get to Charlotte?
0: Oh man, that's been a while ago now. This is, see, this is (laughs) great. That's why we started with that. That way nobody remembers the name of the dive bar by the time we get to the end. You mean the thirsty beaver? (laughs) Thirsty beaver. There it is. We knew knew he would remember it. I'll never forget that. Don't tell them I sent
1: you. Don't be mad at me.
0: We'll make sure we'll make sure that you're the the first person that we uh, we name drop when we get there. But Igor, I I once again we do appreciate your time.
2: Absolutely. Thanks again for spending time with us this morning. My pleasure. I really, as you can tell,
0: I like talking. <laughs> All right. Care, take guys. care. Thank I you really so much for your it. time. Going right on. See ya.